See, North Dakota exists because their Division Two college football team wins the national championship. Every What's year. Maine? Division Twenty Seven. I, I really don't know. <laughs> Do I, they play football there? Maine not well. <laughs> the hockey's better than the football. So the call hockey it football? is probably better yeah. than. The... Well, no, no, the ice hockey. But I mean, the field hockey too. Probably, yeah, I don't know. They're that part of the country. Field hockey country. I think they just have fishing and chowder. <laughs> chowder. <laughs> Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast. I'm Joseph Jarowski here with Todd Mack, and each week we look at a great character and a great story. This week, back by popular demand, we have our first returning guest, Kirsten Christensen. Hey, Hello. hooray, hooray. By Welcome, popular Kirsten. demand, do you mean my mother? <laughs> we <laughs> legitimately have what we call the Kirsten bump <laughs> when you were on our, uh, our podcast. We saw our numbers go up. Because you have a strong social media presence. It may also be the Percy Blakeney jump, but uh, that will... <laughs> yes. We did get more feedback on that than almost any any other one that we've done. So it could be you, could be him. Okay, we'll test it out, right? Yeah. If uh, your numbers go down this week, it was him. <laughs> It could well, be our. It could be. It could be an Anthony Andrews bump. We should do a Ivanhoe or something and see if that's the. That will give us the same bump. But, okay, we'll test it. Well, I'm sure listeners are wondering what we're talking about this week. This week we are going to be talking about Thursday next in the novel The Air Affair, and Thursday next is the name of the character. Uh, she, her her name is Thursday. The book was written by Jasper Ford, and it was published in 2001. Yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> do you have the trivia there, Todd? I do. Uh, the Air Affair was uh, Ford's first novel. He's now published 13 of them. Thursday Next is the protagonist of seven of those novels. Uh, none of his novels have a 13th chapter, which uh, I did not notice as I was <laughs> blazing through this book today. Uh, but they always have a 13th chapter listed in the table of contents. Yeah, yeah um, there's actually in this in this one, it's just a blank page. Is On the page number of the table of contents list, the page is actually just a blank page in the middle of the book. <laughs> And uh, Ford had 76 rejection slips from publishers before The Air Affair was published, uh, although it's not clear how many of these were specifically for The Air Affair. Um, but uh, it's a, certainly a testimony to, like, just keep sending that manuscript out. <laughs> good, good things That's amazing. <laughs> well, I know How does had... that happen? How, how does that happen? You get rejected 76 times, and then one person goes, oh, I think this is pretty good, and then they publish it, and then it's, like, amazing. <laughs> Well, for, I, first of all, I don't think I actually don't think they were all for the air affair because I think he's mentioned that the first of his nursery crime series was actually the first one he tried to pitch. Yeah, so, so at least some of them were for this other book, right? And maybe he revised it in the meantime based on their suggestions. So maybe it got better every five or ten rejections. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I don't know. Yeah, his second se- uh, series, the first book is called... I think it's The Big Over Easy. The Big Over Easy, because it's about Humpty Dumpty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, he, he has said that that was the one that got... He, he, that was the first book he tried sending out. Wow. Well, uh, I'm glad that he persisted, because this was a great book. Well, if anyone is not familiar, here's the quick synopsis of The Air Affair. Uh, Thursday Next is a literary detective in an alternate history, or, uh, an alternate history version of England, where literature is taken very, very, very seriously. Uh, her team is initially called in to investigate the theft of the original manuscript of Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens. 
However, Thursday soon discovers that this is no isolated incident, but actually part of a much larger plan being orchestrated by a criminal mastermind from her past. The air affair is very full of wordplay and literary allusions and humorously blurs the line between detective story, thriller, fantasy, and science fiction. So, if that sounds interesting, you should go read that book. I highly recommend it. This is a very enjoyable read. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so, how did we all come to this work? Joseph, do you want to start out? Uh, I think it was my brother, John, previous guest on the podcast uh, from the Spirited Away episode. He just recommended it to to me, and I can't remember if he lent me his copy or what, but he's he's the reason I read it. And I don't know how he came to it, so that's the end of my story. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think it was my friend Arwen who recommended it, who was um, a friend of mine in undergrad who was an English literature major, and it was kind of making the rounds of the sort of literature circle because people who take literature seriously really like this world in which literature is taken very seriously, (laughs) so that was how I came to it. I wonder if your friend Arwen is the same as my friend Arwen. We don't have to say her last name, but I I just wonder how many people named Arwen are wandering around. Uh, there, there were two at the time she was an undergrad, so we'll have to, because she met the other one once and, like, the universe didn't collapse or anything, but we'll, um, we'll have to compare notes after the show. Okay. Um, I read this book because I'm on this podcast where we read about great characters and great stories and talk about them, and uh, somebody recommended this book, and so I gave it a shot. I actually checked it out from the library uh, well over a week ago with every intention of reading it over a period of time. But um, I had to read another book in the <laughs> in the interim, and then I had this idea that I was just going to take today and read it. Um, but then something else came up, so <laughs> I just had to take the afternoon. Um, so and you finished it less than ten minutes before you started I, recording. <laughs> <laughs> I had read one hundred pages yesterday, and then I read the the following two hundred and seventy four pages in about three hours today so <laughs> okay so uh so it's very fresh so it's very fresh i am primed uh actually i really enjoyed it it was a lot of fun and not hard to read uh fast i mean you can read this like uh, quite quickly so uh so there it is so uh at this point now we will jump into our spoilery synopsis delivered today by kirsta so go for it. Okay, so we're going to have spoilers for the air affair. Um, because of the nature of this work, we're actually also going to include spoilers for Jane Eyre. <laughs> so if you want, <laughs> if you can hold on that one, get reserve. <laughs> if you want two spoiled for the price of one, then you are in luck. Oh, I was. I should also mention that last night I had thought about reading more of the air affair, but then I thought, oh, I should uh, brush up on Jane Eyre. So I re- I watched the 2011 version of Jane Eyre, which I thought was quite good, but. Uh, I'm sure that there are differing opinions. <laughs> is that the is that the Fassbender one? The Fassbender yes, Vashikovska yeah. one. Yes, what, the one with Alice from the Timber and Alice in Wonderland, right? Yes, yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. And uh, I I I thought it was really good, but I could uh, see I, Michael Fassbender having a good brood. He's very uh, very brooding, and she's very sort of um, troubled. <laughs> Okay. In a Bronte novel? What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so, the, so we've got the return of the Brontesaurus, really. Yes. Yeah, we'll, we'll put that ad one more time in the show notes. <laughs> that was so... I watched that video after we just, after we talked uh, last, uh, you know, So this a month is going ago. back to our Weathering Heights episode. We, we talked about a YouTube video where uh, some toys of the Bronte sisters morph together to form the Brontesaurus and break, <laughs> and break down gender barriers. <laughs> 
but not, but not before they 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 show their um, their superpower uh, disguise with their big mu- the big mustache disguise. <laughs> That's how they get published. And the boomerang uh, throwing books at people to yes. smash to smash the barriers. It's it's really good. All right, producer Andrew has something. Yeah, would it be useful? I don't know because I've never read or consumed Jane Eyre in any capacity. Would it be useful for a brief synopsis of that to also be given for this book to be understood best? We'll we'll talk about the ending, but I don't think we have time for a synopsis. I yeah, I, th- I think I, I think we'd be overwhelming. Maybe <laughs> do you do remember? It. Do you remember the synopsis for Wuthering Heights? <laughs> I love that synopsis. (laughs) (laughs) One of our best. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Go for it. Take it away. Thursday Next is a literatech or literary detective working in London in an alternate universe where literature, as we mentioned, is taken very seriously. She is overworked, underappreciated, and unlucky in love. She still keeps a picture of her old boyfriend, Landon Park Lane, in her desk, even though they broke up ten years ago. Side note, Park Lane is the... British term for park place and monopoly. So Landon Park Lane is like a monopoly pun. That's kind of Thursday next and Landon Park Lane. That's how quick it, question. It, Are you going to explain all the wordplay? <laughs> um, I kind of want to explain it in a synopsis because I feel like it gives. Oh a no! Sense I, of I, the... I, I'm just saying, like every page, like, we can stop on every right, page. Right, right, right. Like, yes. Well, this one is actually an illusion too. <laughs> okay. Um, while investigating the theft of the original edition of Martin Chuzzlewit, Thursday is recruited by Philip Tamworth, a representative of a prestigious special operations division, because they believe the manuscript has been stolen by Acheron Hades, an old professor of Thursday's turned criminal mastermind. Hades seems to have mysterious powers. Bullets don't hurt him. He doesn't appear on film or videotape. He can change his appearance at will. He has extremely strong powers of persuasion, and he can sense the presence of anyone who speaks his name. I'm sorry, just real quick. I, I was just <laughs> struck by the fact that someone had Professor Hades when they were in college. And and Acheron is a river in One, one of the rivers, mm-hmm. yeah, near Styx, right? Is it one? Or, no. Yeah, Styx yes. and Acheron and a, a couple more. Yes. Lefty. All of his siblings in future novels. Yeah, there's a little... Closest thing I ever had to Professor Hades was a Professor Boren. Oh, okay. <laughs> I had a Professor Fails. <laughs> there was, there was uh, William Shakespeare who taught Shakespeare. Yes. <laughs> I think his life path was set yeah. when his parents christened him. <laughs> so, um, Thursday joins Tamworth and two other operatives on a stakeout watching Sticks Hades' apartment for any appearance of his brother, Acheron. Tamworth hands Thursday a copy of Jane Eyre to read if she gets bored, and Thursday muses on the fact that she's never liked the ending in which Jane decides to go to India with Sinjin Rivers instead of marrying Rochester. Note, in our universe, Jane Eyre does marry Edward Rochester at the end of the book, so this is this difference is important. That, In addition to being an alternate universe, the novel Jane Eyre ends differently. The operatives spot Acheron and decide to move in, but they accidentally alert him to their presence, and he proves to be too powerful for them. He kills three of the operatives, including Tamworth, and shoots Thursday in the chest, leaving her for dead, although she's saved by the copy of Jane Eyre in her breast pocket. (laughs) Usually it's the Bible, but, you know, this time it's Jane Eyre. Um, After the stakeout fiasco, Thursday accepts the Literatech posting in her hometown of Swindon, where she meets Officer Stoker, nicknamed Spike, who works for Vampire and Werewolf Disposal Operations. Landon, Thursday's ex-boyfriend, still lives in Swindon, and he sends Thursday flowers at her hotel. He comes by to see her and they talk. 
Mycroft Next, Thursday's mad scientist uncle, also lives in Swindon and has invented a device called the Prose Portal, which allows a human being to step into a literary work and experience it firsthand. He tests it out on his wife, Polly, who steps into a copy of Wordsworth's I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud, his famous poem about daffodils. All is going well until Mycroft and the Prose Portal are kidnapped by Hades, trapping Polly in the poem. Hades takes Mycroft and the Prose Portal to his hideout, an old, old hotel deep in communist Wales. Wales is not actually a communist country, and I know. Not sure if you're up in your Welsh politics. Hades realizes that the prose portal can be used to allow a person to enter the literary world, but it can also be used to take people or things out of the literary world into the real world. He sends one of his men into Martin Chuzzlewit to extract a minor character who he then has killed. Because the character was taken out of the original manuscript of Martin Chuzzlewit, he's also removed from every other printed copy of Martin Chuzzlewit, forever altering the story. Hades and his men threaten to do even more damage to the story unless their public demands are met. Can I ask a really quick question? Yes, sir. Have either of you read Martin Chuzzlewit? No. no. Really? <laughs> nope. Have you? No. <laughs> <laughs> so, so why the shock? <laughs> well, because uh, you people are combined with your powers combined. I thought there's no way that I had to. I had to uh, confirm that it's actually a real novel. <laughs> <laughs> okay. At least I knew it was a real novel. Yes, it does exist. I don't. The character. I have no idea if that's a little side character actually exists in it. The one that they pull out and kill. I'm sure he... I'm sure he does. Yeah, I just don't know which way... Well, I don't way. know, because Jane Eyre wasn't like our Jane Eyre. Maybe he That's was true. making their Chuzzlewit like our Chuzzlewit. That's true. But he's still... Ah. Mr. Waverly's still mentioned very slightly. He just doesn't like... He just has like a hat or something that is okay. being hung up. Anyway. Back in Swindon, <laughs> Thursday is investigating her uncle and aunt's disappearance when Spike radios that he needs assistance, and Thursday goes to help him out. Together, they fight off a vampire, and he gives her a silver bullet for luck. Thursday and Landon go on a date to see an interactive version of Richard III. This is basically Richard III as the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yes. That's so awesome. (laughs) But the evening ends with them arguing about Thursday's dead brother, Anton. Anton was Landon's best friend and died in battle while they were all serving in the Crimean War. Should we explain the Crimean War in this In our world, the Crimean War occurred in the 1850s. Like, from 1853 to 1856, I think. In between um, Great Britain and Russia. In their world, the Crimean War has been going on for, like, over 100 years. And they're still fighting it. Um, that said, jokes about wars in the Crimea, in the Crimea were probably funnier in 2001 than they are in 2015. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, so Thursday believes that Landon has been disrespectful of her brother's memory, while Landon maintains that it was his duty to tell the truth about the events leading to Anton's death. This argument is the reason they broke up ten years ago, and Landon asks Thursday with some urgency if they will ever be able to get past this issue in their relationship. She says no. Later, Thursday finds out that Landon has been caring for Anton's grave for the last ten years, and she decides that she misjudged him. Thursday calls him to apologize, but a woman picks up who says that her name is Daisy Mutlar, and she and Landon are engaged. This sounds like it happens really quickly in the summary. There is, like, a decent amount of time between this, um, but we're... We're trimming. We're trimming. Uh, Lots. We're trimming lots. Uh, Mycroft destroys the manuscript of Martin Chuzzlewit to keep it safe from Hades meddling, so Hades, Hades decides to go after a bigger prize, the manuscript of Jane Eyre. Hades uses the prose portal to enter the Jane Eyre manuscript, kidnap Jane, and bring her to the real world. Because the novel Jane Eyre is written in the first person, kidnapping Jane from the story has the effect of halting the story entirely. Suddenly, every copy of Jane Eyre in the world is nothing but blank pages after the point where Hades kidnapped Jane. (laughs) This literary disturbance provokes a national emergency with high-level meetings between the president of the Bronte Federation and the Prime Minister. 
Thursday and company eventually make their way to Hades' hideout in Wales. Not wanting to be caught, Hades uses the prose portal to jump into the manuscript of Jane Eyre, taking the Wordsworth poem where Polly is still imprisoned as a hostage. Thursday and Jane jump into Jane Eyre so that Jane can, con can continue the narrative and Thursday can look for Hades. Thursday spends weeks in Jane Eyre trying to corner Hades. She has to avoid interacting with Jane directly so that she doesn't alter the narrative, but is otherwise free to move about as she wishes. Hades finally appears in Thornfield Hall and threatens Thursday, but Bertha Rochester stabs him with a pair of scissors and he drops his candle, <laughs> setting fire to the room. That's not funny. Don't laugh at that. <laughs> it's, it's so good. The, the, the whole, everything that happens here is great. Bertha appears to have seriously wounded him, but he recovers and escapes to the roof where he shoots Rochester in the hand and throws Bertha off the roof. Thursday realizes the scissors were made of silver. She reasons that it must be one of Hades' weaknesses and fatally shoots him with the silver bullet she got from Spike. Acheron and Bertha are now dead, but Thursday still feels unhappy that Rochester and Jane won't end, up, won't, end up, won't end up together as the story is currently written. So she goes to the river's home, hides outside of Jane's window, and whispers, Jane, 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 <laughs> which spurs Jane to come back to Ferndean and reunite with Rochester. Thursday returns to the real world with the Wordsworth poem from which Polly is released. Thursday goes to stop Landon's wedding, but loses her nerve after she arrives at the church. Luckily, a man intervenes to say that Daisy Mutlar is already married, so the wedding cannot continue, in a nod to Jane Eyre. Uh, Thursday and Landon sort out their differences and get married. The end. Very, very well done. Thank you. Yes. I'm impressed. We only cut out about five major side characters <laughs> and some really major plot points, and yes. <laughs> some people don't show up at all. There's a, this novel enjoys its little side jaunts yes <laughs> absolutely absolutely and, and you turned off a lot of those but if, so if you're if you're reading it our synopsis has not ruined everything for you because no, there's quite a bit it. uh that that is still there so of all of the side characters that you didn't mention i don't know why but the one that the one that stands out to me is the japanese tourist oh yeah yeah uh-huh <laughs> i really like her there's a inside of the inside of the jane eyre novel yes Mrs. There's, a Nakajima. Woman, there's a woman who's a japanese tourist and she has somehow she has the ability to come into the novel right and without she does a, never disturb pros, anything without a prose portal right yeah she just she just closes her eyes and wishes she was there and then clicks her heels and so i don't throw some salt over i don't know what <laughs> she does but uh, but then she's there in the novel and she can take people with her and then they sort of rochester will take them on a tour of the mansion right. and he says this helps to fund his, <laughs> right. his country <laughs> estate he charges yeah. them she but pays. they always do it when jane's not around right because the only rule right. is jane can't interact with anything else because right. the novel yeah. is she's from the her narrator perspective. Yeah. yeah i love the i mean this is this is by no means you know hard speculative fiction but i love the um I, I love the little rules that, that come into play about what she can and can't do and, and how people treat her. And anyway, yeah. so, so one issue that kind of came up earlier is do you have to have read Jane Eyre or seen Jane Eyre to appreciate this novel in its entirety? I so, think you have to be familiar with the right. plot. All right. I'm going to ask our producer, Andrew, to step in here because he has read this book, but he has never seen nor read Jane Eyre. Andrew, do you have to <laughs> have seen or read Jane Eyre to appreciate this novel? To appreciate the novel, no. To appreciate it in its entirety, probably. Yeah. So, uh, there's, yeah. Well, like when, uh, so Kirsta and Andrew and I are all actually in the same room for this recording. And when she was saying some of the things about, like, in our world, Jane Eyre, you know, of course, doesn't go with Sinjin, or she ends up marrying Rochester, and Andrew just goes, what? <laughs> <laughs> right. So he, like, just. Uh, a reader could appreciate kind of all the twists and turns that are happening, but they might not understand that this is now like reverting the novel to the one we know. Right. And some of the, like, um, 
the whole final scene with Acheron when he burns down Thornfield Hall and Rochester <laughs> gets blinded and his hand shot off. Mm-hmm. Like, in the novel, you hear that that happened, but it's all off page and you don't really know, you know, how any of it went down other than that his mad wife kind of had a hand in it all happening. Yeah. And now we get this crazy action scene <laughs> that, that fits within the narrative uh, to a degree yeah. um, that it's really kind of fun and playful to see it play out that way. Well, yeah. and it and it just cracks me up. I mean, alternate history is usually about making much bigger changes, but the fact that, and there are very big changes in this world, but the fact that you have, that one of the significant differences between this world and ours is Jane Eyre and slightly differently, like, how is that, you know, like, it's it's a completely different universe where this novel has a slightly different ending, so. And I just love that everyone in the universe, like, raves about Jane Eyre, but I'll admit, the ending's kind of disappointing. Right. Right. The whole book's great, but I don't know, I feel like it just kind of fizzles out. Right. And then they, yeah, and then and then when Thursday changes the ending, they praise it as being very in the style of Bronte, so, you know, out Bronte, only, Bronte, I guess. Only the Bronte Federation is sort of against it, and then they yes. finally have to... Yes, but they're, you know, federations are uptight, so... Well, and I enjoy that uh, within this alternate world. Like we said, they take literature very seriously, and so there's the Bronte Federation that's very protective of the Bronte novels, and you also have the Shakespeare truthers who go around like missionaries trying to argue that it was Bacon who really wrote the Shakespeare plays, <laughs> Yeah, and then there's uh, Marlowe Society that's mm-hmm. arguing yeah. that it was Marlowe, and everyone else, like, this is casual conversation, this is small talk. It's, oh, yeah. Who do you yeah. think really wrote Th- the Shakespeare Thursday plays? Thursday goes to a, a, sits down at a bar in her hotel and, like, has this really in-depth conversation about, you know, alternate Shakespeare theories, and it's actually very <laughs> educational about alternate Shakespeare theories. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I, um, it's just I, was gonna, I was going to I was going to read this novel. I I'm fairly certain that I read Jane Eyre in high school. Okay, I know you did, Todd. I was in that class. <laughs> okay, <laughs> well, at least you, you participated in class discussions about it. I guess I can't say that you. you no, I, if I if it was assigned in high school, then I read it because I read everything that was assigned. That I mean. As today proves, I read everything that's assigned. <laughs> You're no slacker. I'm no slacker. Uh, but as I started this novel and they were making references to the ending, I thought, hmm, <laughs> I don't really remember how Jane Eyre <laughs> And they do, I mean, for someone like you who's read it a while ago but not recently, they actually do do a good job of going back and explaining the ending very carefully. There's a, yes. there's a kind of... Um, what is it called when you're like a, like an info dump part where where Thursday's new partner actually hasn't read it, so she's like, uh, and he's very okay. embarrassed and ashamed. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So she has to go through the whole novel. So that's a nice refresher, I think, if you've already read it before. But if you're like Andrew and you don't realize that the ending in our world is different, then that's something that you're missing out on. Although, have yeah, you so read have you read Barton Chuzzlewit, Andrew? No. <laughs> but all the uh, all the Shakespeare talk was fun. Yes. Yes. I yeah. had all the context I needed for that, and I I really did enjoy the. Um, the the solution that they gave to who wrote Shakespeare. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So this is one of the side characters that got cut out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thursday's dad works for the Chrono Guard, which is the time traveling branch of Special Ops, and except he doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> he went rogue <laughs> because he went rogue. They, they ceased his existence, but Thursday's still there, and he pops in to visit her every now and then. But he's always on the run. But he uh, on her wedding day, he asked her like, "Is there anything I can do for you?" And she says, no. And he's like, come on, I, I can travel through all space and time. Tell me, <laughs> is there anything I can do for you? She's like, well, tell me who really wrote the Shakespeare plays. And so he says, oh, I went back and I, I found this Shakespeare guy, but he didn't know what I was talking about. So I brought a complete works of Shakespeare and I gave it to him. <laughs> and I told him to space out whenever he had these produced. <laughs> and, that's, nice. and then uh, Thursday's new husband is like, was looking very confused. She said, it's time travel. Don't even, don't even, don't even think about it. So, so that leads me to another question. Uh, for you, both of you, which is 
there se- there seems to be this mix of like rules about certain things. Mm-hmm. So he's, it seems like Ford is very careful about. Uh, you know, if you go into the novel, then you can't talk to Jane Eyre because she's a first-person narrative, and if we take her out, then it will ruin the story. But that will only happen if it's an original manuscript. If you put somebody in a copy, then it will only affect that copy or any copies made from that copy. Right. Uh, So he's, like, very careful about some things. And then other things, he just waves his hand and Mm -hmm. says, uh, Hades, uh, he stops bullets, he can magically disguise himself, and he can walk through walls, and he doesn't show up on videotape. Or, you know, the time travel stuff is never really... Right. Uh, he doesn't seem to pay but much attention to it. He actually highlights the paradoxes of time travel and just leaves it there. He doesn't yeah. try and resolve the paradoxes. He, yeah. he enjoys presenting these paradoxes. So well, does that there... work? Does that work for you? I, I, For me, it does, because there's something in this tone of this novel that makes me give it all a pass. <laughs> yeah. Like, right. Uh, and it's established kind of early on. Like, he does a good job of seeding that this world is not only different because the Crimea War is still going mm-hmm. on and things, but, like, you go into Mycroft's lab and you get all these crazy, insane inventions <laughs> that couldn't possibly really exist. Uh, but the descriptions are just so delightful mm-hmm. and Mycroft just kind of passes off, like you said, with a wave of his hand. And so you kind of just accept that parts of this world are just different. <laughs> Yeah, in in tone, the thing it reminds me the most of is the is the Hitchhiker's Guide series, um, Douglas Adams, which which you know reads like a science fiction novel based on an improv humorous radio show, which it is. Um, so again, you've got these sort of silly little like the infinite improbability drive, and you've got these sort of silly little jaunts around the world. I do think one thing about Douglas Adams is I love the books. I don't really care about the characters. And so it's more just like, where are they going to go? What's, you know, what adventures are they they're going to have? But at least in the, at least in the Thursday next books, I do really care about the characters, but, but yeah, that sort of, it, it doesn't really fit well into any single genre. I mean, it has time travel in it and it has technology in it, which kind of sounds like, like science fiction, but you know, it also has, Hades, who is apparently a, a demon of some sort or a half demon or something, and he, he calls himself a half human at one point. Yeah, and I and I think he's described as demonic at at some point too. So that kind of led me to think that yeah, who has these mysterious powers? And then um, and then you know, Mycroft's inventions are really silly and played for laughs. And so um, and then it's a thriller and a mystery. And so. I, you know, if you if you love any one of those genres, the, one of those like a really prototypical example of those genres, like you don't recommend this book to someone who loves Ender's Game. You know, Ender's Game is fantastic <laughs> science fiction, but you don't go from Ender's Game to the Air Affair. And I think that's unless you're us. Well, <laughs> no. First, you have to go to Wuthering Heights, and then you can step into the Air Affair. Maybe visit a serious polyp on the way. There you go. Um, <laughs> you know, but I, I think I think the sort of genre busting and tone either works for people or it really doesn't. Um, I looked up some. I actually looked up some negative reviews of this book before, in preparation for the podcast, just to see, okay, this this really works for me, but when it doesn't work for someone else, what is it that's not working about it? And uh, one person said that they read the first chapter about how the Crimean War was still going on and thought, okay, this is like a dystopian alternative history. And it's not a dystopian alternative history. You know, it's funny and jaunty. And then she was like very disappointed the whole way through that this was just a very bad dystopian alternate history. And I'm like, well, it's not. That's not, you know, that's not what it is. So, um, so yeah, if, if the tone doesn't work for you, you know, then... Yeah, it's, people like what they like. And yeah, some people are yeah. not going to enjoy some of those twists and turns. But I found it delightful. That's right. very pastiche. It's it's sort of all yeah, of it, these things. It's got a lot of slammed together elements. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It also the the references also either work for you 
or they don't. You know, if you're someone who's catching all the references and thinking, oh, this is so funny and this is so clever. I mean, there's like a George Eliot reference on the first page that I don't think I caught the first two times I read it. Um, but at the same time, if you're not catching them or, or if you're like me, and I know that there, I know that there are references in there that I'm not catching and that kind of bothers me that I can't find them or track them down. So there's sort of that element of like, okay, are you in on the joke and is it fun or are you left outside pretty sure that there's a joke going on and not really knowing, you know, not really able to track it down? Yeah, I've been in, I've read other things that bother me far more than this does. And I know that there's so much in this novel. I mean, it's so clear that it's full of Easter eggs, mm-hmm. um, but it didn't really bother me. Maybe there's like a critical mass. Like if you, if you get enough of it, then you can, you're okay. But, uh, but none of that bothered me. And I t- absolutely agree with you on um, caring about the characters. I think Thursday is a fantastic character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would be happy to read more of these novels just to sort of see what happens to her. And, yeah. and you can see him laying the groundwork for, for, their, for their novels in, in here. I should say there, um, there is a series of annotations, online annotations for American readers who aren't getting all of the refer- references that British readers might get. So it's not all of the illusions so and that annotations. Would, that would probably cover both the literature, but also some of the politics. Yes. Yes. <laughs> like, like what the Crimean war was or like the British monopoly versus the American monopoly or, you know, or, um, or the, the UK situation with Wales and right, <laughs> right. The fact that Wales is not in fact a communist country. Um, so that's, that has a lot of, a lot of references in it. And then Jasper Ford did annotations for, I think the first four pages of Thursday next. And i honestly, there's like, I don't know, 40 annotations or something just in four yeah. pages. It's, it's, it's so dense and I really wish he would do the rest of it, but it would probably take 10 times as long as it takes to actually write a book. So. <laughs> yeah. So when it comes to, um, these kinds of illusions or references, there's kind of two, like there's the T.S. Eliot where you're being elitist and you're showing off. Um, but then there's also the school where you're trying to create a more founda- a foundation that more people can get, can understand. And I think the way, even though there's that many illusions and there's so many that we don't actually get, the way it's all presented, though, like you feel like you're in when you catch them, and mm-hmm. when you don't catch them all, it, it's not really significant enough yeah. to make you feel left out. Whereas, like with the TSL, some of the references, like if you're not getting it, you don't know what he's talking about. Right. With Ford, they're in there. If if you are aware of them, they kind of pop out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you don't, I think you can pass through them pretty quickly and not right. even realize there were those illusions happening. Or they're referenced by name. So when they go to see Richard III, you don't have to know Richard III well. But but when you see there, he's kind of funny takes on various lines of it. Then you might, you know, if you did read Richard III, then you then you might um, recognize those later. Or or when he has like the will speak machines, which are these like like kind of automated <laughs> mannequins that will like recite Shakespeare for you for ten pence. Um, and they and the and Thursday and her brothers used to beg their mother for ten pence so they could go stick it in the machine. Um, again, like you always know what play it is, and so and so that's a more overt reference that you can still either be happy that you recognize the line or, you know, get to know a play a little bit better. Can we talk briefly about the Richard the Third play? Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, wait, before we do that, can I, I, I just, I still think that there's, I, I think that there is a threshold on this novel. I don't, I don't, I really don't think that this the novel is written for like the masses. It's no. not Twilight, like, it's not Twilight. <laughs> no, I agree with that. And I think that a lot of people would read this novel and go, oh, man, this is really dense. And I don't, I'm not, I don't get all of this stuff. I haven't read all of these things. Um, and I don't, I don't think you have to have read all of those things. Clearly uh, but not. I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but I do think that it, it certainly greases the wheels a lot if you have 
if you're you know fairly familiar with you know the canon or right i was gonna say i i feel like if you went through some of the foundational english courses that english majors go through where you kind of run through the the norton anthologies like at that point even though you're not doing a deep reading of all those at that point you've probably got a lot of the the foundational knowledge I think Unless if you vaguely, if you English vaguely, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if you vaguely remember your high school English classes and you took a couple of good English classes in college and you kind of like you enjoyed them and you remember some of the stuff, then I I would say go for it with this novel. But if you're like, uh, I I don't remember anything and I have never read anything that was written before 2001, then I would say hmm, maybe you should. <laughs> There's lots of other good stuff that I think you would enjoy more than this novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think, like you said, I don't think it's designed to appeal to the masses. I think it's designed to appeal to a smaller group, but very, very strongly to them. And so, you know, of all the highbrow literary books that we could be reading, this is the one that gets passed around. It's like, oh, this is so funny if you've you've taken, you know, Shakespeare classes or if you've read Jane Eyre or if you... Right. It's it's kind of like... um... The example I can think of is on television, there'll be some shows that get a large audience that you never hear anyone talk about. Um, so CBS is famous as a network that will have some of the highest rated shows, but you don't really see any online presence um, on websites that talk about popular culture that discuss those shows. Whereas something like Community on NBC has a vastly smaller audience, but it is so much more devoted and talks about it so much more online. You you can't go to entertainment websites and avoid references to Community anymore. <laughs> and I think in literature or, or for the bookstore crowd, this is that kind of text, like the Community type of text, where it might not get the wide as wide an audience as a general sitcom but it'll get a much more devoted following to, to those who read it and i would say to ford's uh, credit that it never feels condescending ever i mean it, it it's it's a joyful and it's delightful and it, he's not purposefully writing people out of his readership he just wrote the novel that he wanted to write and it just so happens that it may be a smaller segment of the population than um, than some other writers would hope to hit, but I think he's okay with that. Uh, but he's not. Tr- he's not. He's not purposefully pushing readers away. What, I what think. it really seems to be, it's a cult book for people who have taken a survey of British literature. <laughs> yeah, right. <Yes. laughs> Very true. Yeah, there's a later. Since I know you've done Wuthering Heights, there's a later book where. Um, the characters from Wuthering Heights all have to go through group therapy, <laughs> which is just. One of the most it's delightful things yeah. I've ever read, yeah. That's awesome. All right, well, let's talk about Richard III. Uh, I guess, do you guys, did you enjoy that scene? Let's oh, yeah, say. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, as you said, it's kind of like a Rocky Horror Picture style where the audience, so the setup is that every week in Swindon, the same theater plays Richard III, and the cast is selected from the audience, who have all seen it so many times, they know all the lines for all the parts. <laughs> and as, as the play is being performed, they're, like, they're doing catcalls, and they're like yelling out jokes in between the lines as they're about to deliver, mm-hmm. uh, be delivered. Uh, it reminds me of, in uh, Star Wars, there's one scene where Obi-Wan Kenobi says, I, uh, when... Um, what, how could this possibly remind you of Star for Wars? <laughs> wait for there's, there's a scene where Obi-Wan Kenobi says, uh, he's always been old Ben Kenobi, and Luke finds him and says, have you ever heard of Obi-Wan Kenobi? And Obi-Wan Kenobi says, that's a name I haven't heard in a long time. And there's this pause, and if you see it in some crowd, someone will yell, how long? And then Alec Guinness says, a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> 
and uh, and that's the kind of thing that's happening with the Shakespeare play uh, in, in this performance is you know every every few lines there's a setup that the audience provides and the character on stage delivers the punchline but it's just the line in the text or the character on stage will say something and the audience will yell back a punchline mm-hmm. uh, and so it just seems like it's this this party atmosphere uh, around Shakespeare and it's just something that is so fun to to read like I that that chapter has kind of a joy to it where you you get I guess Ford's love of literature really shines through in that yeah. scene uh, more so than like all these other little side references like just there's kind of a a bubbling energy mm-hmm. uh, when you read through that it's a fairly short chapter because he, he jumps around pretty quick through the timeline of, of the Richard the third play uh, but there's this energy to that one chapter that has stood out to me every time I've read the book how many times have you read the book I want to say this was actually my third time reading it so wow. I read the book when my brother first recommended it. And then I got my hands on a few of the sequels. So I reread it to like get into the, the world again for the sequels. And then, cause we were doing it today, this is my third time. And each time that one chapter stood out to me. All right. Yeah. I really, I, I, I thought I want to go to that play, but I hope they don't <laughs> pick me. I hope they don't pick me to be in it because <laughs> you don't I'm have not Richard super, the third I'm memorized. not super, no, I'm not, I don't have Richard the third memorized, but I love the, <laughs> the couple that they, that they picked to be, to play the leads and they, it's their 200th, Time being there, and they've played all these different roles, right. but they've X never been times, opposite each other. But they never had played opposite each other, and now they finally can, and everybody's so happy about it. And I also awesome. like how it said, like every now and then, uh, a famous actor will stop by and do one of the roles just for uh-huh. one week, right? <laughs> just, just well, and it, and it also kind of reminds me of a dinner theater atmosphere, where it's like, oh, I would like to welcome so and so because they're here from so far away. And of course, you know, dinner theater, dinner theater does not have a reputation of being very highbrow, but this is interactive Richard the third. So it's got right. that high, it, low. You, well, yeah. And you made the, re- making the reference to, um, the Rocky horror picture show, which is kind of a, a cult, but lowbrow cult mm-hmm. following that it has more like a Monty Python kind of crowd mm-hmm. than what you traditionally associate with the Shakespeare crowd. And that's one of the things in this world where everyone's taking literature, like literature is such a pervasive part of the world. You get that blend of things that you traditionally associate with, with high art and things that are so traditionally associated with folk art. There, there's no, barrier yeah uh those lines are completely disrupted in this world it's interesting because we we've uh, both of you mentioned early on that in this world literature is taken very very seriously but here we see literature being taken maybe lightly playfully yeah playfully yeah and uh, it's so it's but it's only it's pervasive yeah they can only take it that playfully because it's so commonplace in their world right yeah that everyone can know the jokes for a Richard III monologue. What could you insert to make that sound funny? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I think we should talk about Thursday because... She's the main character. <laughs> she's the main character, and this is a podcast where we talk about great characters and great stories. So what makes Thursday a great character? Well, she plays into a lot of the stereotypical, um, you know, hard-boiled detective kind of tropes, especially especially when the novel starts. Um, so she's, you know, again, she's she's working... She's good at her job, but she's in a in a less respected branch of, of special operations, and she's kind of down her luck. And then she goes Hold to on, this. Let's, uh, for just real quick special <laughs> operations. <laughs> so she's level literary attack is level twenty seven. Twenty seven, and she mentions that like as you go higher, like closer to number one, yeah, it's more secretive. Mm-hmm. And even though you work in special operations, you don't know what SO nine does. Mm-hmm. Like she only knows a few of those, and everyone kind of speculates on like what does SO three really do? That sort of thing. And so she's number 27, which, as you said, is kind of lower on um, the, the hierarchy. Doesn't that seem surprising to you, considering how, uh, how important literature is to this culture, that they would be 27? 
it it seems as though a lot of the higher ones deal with the fabric of reality. Right. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That's probably fair. At what point is it time travel? Time travel is, is that SO9? SO9, I think? Yeah. And no, it's uh, 12. 12? Oh, SO12? Yeah, yeah. so there's, there's 11 things 12. above time travel. Yeah. <laughs> Anti-terrorism is 9. Search and containment is 5. And what is Spike? Is Spike who does the werewolves and the, the demons and everything? Is he... Which, I can't remember. What I, can't I, I remember. want to say it was like sixteen or something. Yeah, yeah, that's what, that was what I was going to say. But I also and love, one is the one they they police all the other right. Groups. Number one is the is like the internal affairs. Well, and like for the for the literature, it's significant but not in danger. Right up, up until this novel, there's right. no significant danger to the literature. It's, it's more about catching uh, counterfeits and that sort of thing. Yeah, they do, they do bust like drug busts, but they're, but they're busting people that are selling fake copies of manuscripts of novels and, or and Ford uses some of the, the economy of the drug trade to talk about nah. <laughs> the way these, like when certain new, um, new counterfeits flood the market and what it does to the economy in that local region, <laughs> that sort of thing. Spike is spec op 17. So he's, he's I was more close. I was close. Yeah, so seventeen. The, the dealing with vampires is ahead of dealing with forgeries, right? And and maybe you know maybe it's like the head of the Bronte Society that's that's a really high like a really high negotiating individual. So maybe those people are really highly um, respected, even if the the beat cops of the literature world aren't. <laughs> All right. Anyway, back to Thursday. Yes. So what makes her great? Well, uh, Kirsten was saying you you start out with this kind of hardboiled detective mm-hmm. uh, aspect to the character, but um, more so than some of the other characters we've talked about, I think she she evolves and changes through through this story, which is one of those things I like to see in the protagonists. I, mean, I, I think we've talked about some fun protagonists who don't necessarily change as much as you would expect, um, but you you do see this um, this standoffish and um, kind of no nonsense one uh, character at the beginning and it ends kind of in the Shakespearean comedy with a happy wedding mm-hmm. of, of her and Landon Park Lane and she's um, she's quite different I think I think that um, that getting to know the characters in Jane Eyre also really especially Rochester really really kind of changes her perspective on on what love is we should um, we should clarify that characters in in the book world in Jane Eyre know that they're characters they just have to kind of act out their parts every time someone reads the book but when they're not on stage, so to speak, they still have their same personalities. They just happen to know that they're characters. So they're just kind of like that's the embodiment that they're the embodiment of those characters. And so and so Rochester is desperately in love with Jane and and you know thinks that the time they spend together is is the best part of his life. And I think that getting to know him and also to a certain extent getting to know Jane, um, you know, changes her perspective on love or on what's really important in life. Not everybody all at once. <laughs> what did you like about Thursday? I'm gonna have loads of time to process this. Um, so I, I, I guess... love noir fiction mm-hmm. and uh, film noir and the noir detective. The way that noir plays with isolation, mm-hmm. and uh, I think that Ford gets that, uh, and we see her sort of, um, you know, down on her luck and. Uh, unlucky and lo- unlucky in love, burned mm-hmm. by romance, and you know, hanging out at the bar, and literally then, physically scarred as well. Like she has some scars from Crimea, mm-hmm. right? Um, I mean, she's a she's a veteran of war, uh, as many of the noir 
protagonists are. And I mean, noir comes out of, in a lot of ways, out of the war. Have but, you? Sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Have you read any of the uh, the Terry Pratchett Night Watch books? No. Nor have I. You should see the look on Kirsten's face. She is aghast at us. We may need to put this one on the future future Martin schedule. Martin Chuzzle went nothing. We haven't read Pratchett? I've read Pratchett. For I shame. just haven't read okay, that. Watch. Okay. Um, there's a... I'm not a heathen. <laughs> there's a... Uh, there's a character, Sam Vimes, who's in the who's in like the city, the Night Watch. So basically, the the police officers of the city. Um, anyway, if you had read it, we could talk about how. And um, there, you know, Pratchett again has a lot of pathos, but is also very funny and and tends towards happy endings. And so, um, and so, Sam Vimes reminds me in, in tone a lot of a lot of Thursday Next, so the first the first Sam Vimes book. Right, but uh, what I like about Thursday Next is that we kind of see her heel. Oh, that's yes, true. and that's and that's exactly where I was going. Is that you see it, it, early in the novel? I'd say maybe the first half of the novel. She feels very kind of classic noir, um, and she meets her boyfriend. She sits down at the piano, and it's almost like Casablanca. She's sitting down. She's playing the the duet. She's playing her part of a duet, and then this guy comes and sits down next to her and starts playing the other. And she knows she can't look at him because she's still kind of mad at him, and it's also perfect. Yeah. Um, and then they have this argument, and it's like, yep, that's noir. <laughs> this is not gonna end. And I don't know why I love noir so much because it really is just dark and gritty. Um, but there's something about it that I find really, um, I don't know, attractive. Uh, but uh, but then it, the then as happens often in this novel, you go. Whoa, this is wait a second. You, you thought this was a noir novel, but it's really a Shakespearean comedy mm-hmm. in which it will end in marriage and everybody will be happy. Yeah. Um, and I think I thought that was cool to watch her. I mean, she she still is the same character. She just feels believable throughout. Uh, none of the changes in her. Uh, feel unbelievable to me, but she changes quite dramatically and and fits inside of all of these genres, mm-hmm. which I think is kind of the mark of a great character. Uh, we've talked before about you know if you took X character and put them in a different story, would they still be compelling as just a, as a human being, or are they only compelling because they're in a certain context? And I think she's compelling as a human being because we see her in a science fiction novel and we see her in a noir novel and we see her in a Shakespearean novel or a play and we see her in all of these different contexts and she continues to be herself and compelling and I like that about her. And she's, even though we said she's kind of broken in the classic noir style, she's still quite competent at mm-hmm. everything that she does. Like yes. she's, she's the only one, She it's, it's never explained why, but she has more willpower than almost anyone who Akron encounters. Like mm-hmm. he can't mess with her mind the way he, he can mess with everyone else's. Um, she, when <laughs> there's a moment in one of these little side loops where uh, they come across a time anom- anomaly that's going to swallow a, uh, well, it's, it's like making a time <laughs> vortex black hole and no one knows what to do. And she just looks at her partner and says, let's go take care of this. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and everyone and is, glad, is glad that she was there to mm-hmm. take care of it. Yeah. Um, and so... Uh, I, I'm just trying to think, like you said. And while they're in, while they're in that time vortex, she runs into a version of herself that's obviously in trouble, and she has the presence of mind to give her, lend herself a hand. And Which, I by hope, the way, doesn't that does not pay off in this novel? That's a setup for a future. Yeah, yeah, I was trying it to remember to that. Okay, is that uh, it? Has to it has it, to show up in some future novel, right? 
It does. Yeah. Okay. It. <laughs> uh, but also, I guess, at the beginning of this novel, when she... So, after her first meeting with Akron Hades, before she goes back to Swindon or anything, she's in the hospital bed, and all of a sudden, a car appears in her hospital room, and she gets out, like, Thursday next is lying in the hospital bed, and she sees Thursday next get out of the car, <laughs> and yell, take the job in Swindon. Yes. Uh, so, it's kind of got some Back to the Future play, playful elements, and it's when she's trying to take care of this um, this time vortex that she bounces... She bounces back into the hospital room, and she the scene plays out again from the different perspective, which I always enjoy when those moments happen in good time travel stories, yes. where it gets paid off in a way that makes sense, and that um, you know the setup and the payoff all connects within the logic of time travel. And as we've said, that doesn't always happen in this book, because he enjoys playing with the paradoxes of time travel. But that one, at least, you, you see both those moments sure. happen right away. Sure. I also like the moment where Thursday decides that she's going to go help Spike out, because I said in the summary that Spike radios for help, but what the at the, at the Swindon office, what they tell her is, oh yeah, he always radios for help. None of us ever help him, because what he does is so far... What he has to face is so far above what we have to deal with. It's just like he always, you know, says he's in desperate need, and then like the next day she'll up for work and he's fine. And so they're like, no, 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 don't. If you go to help him, you'll die. And she's like, he's my friend and he's my fellow officer, and he says he needs help. I'm going to go help him. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and afterwards, uh, Spike even says, oh, I, I didn't expect anyone to respond. No right. Does. I just kind of call <laughs> right. out so that people know I'm here. <laughs> yeah, she says I'm coming, and he's like, really? Are you sure? <laughs> Yeah, and I believe um, I believe each of the books has a little a little spike chapter. In this case, it sets up why she, the the reason that she has the, the, the silver, silver bullet. bullet. The silver bullet. Um, but yeah, I, I think that each of the books kind of goes through. And I remember this is a vague memory, but I remember Spike has a delightful romance. Yes. <laughs> Where yes, he's like exchanging letters with someone. I, right. I'm trying to remember. It's, right, it's and he, and he's trying to drop hints about what he really does for a living, and she's trying to drop hints about what she really does for a living, and they keep missing each other's hints. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. Good times. That's a little preview of a later book. But so she's really competent in time travel. She's competent in this supernatural world where Spike is. She's a war hero. She went back and rescued people at Crimea when no one else would. Um, and, and so in each of these little genres where we see her play, she isn't perfect. She makes mistakes in them, but she's competent enough to get the job done. Uh, whatever the job is. And, and that's, I think, one of the recurring character traits is that she's resourceful enough that no matter what the situation is, she finds a way to come out on top. Uh, I, I like that about her. Let's talk about her relationship with Landon real quick, because that's one where she does come out on top at end, but I actually think that's one of the, for me, one of the weaker portions of the book is that whole love story. Yeah, it's not really set up why Landon would suddenly get engaged to someone else because <laughs> yes. we meet her and she's this like terrible gold digger of a person. So I don't think that's well supported. And Isn't it sort of doesn't it sort of mirror Jane Eyre though in a way? The the so the when Mister Briggs comes in to say they can't get married because um, oh you mean you mean just like marrying the person that you don't yeah, know very Rochester well? Rochester. Oh, I didn't think about yeah, that. Yeah, I'm talking yeah. about Rochester yeah. marrying uh, what's Bertha? her name? Bertha. Bertha. Yeah. Yeah, but it for me, I like I appreciate that mirroring, but I don't respect Landon very much. <laughs> <laughs> when he okay, so he's in a relationship that's deep enough. He's about to get engaged. That his old girlfriend goes to town, and so he goes to see her and says, "Hey, is there a chance?" And when she says no, he's like, "Fine," and he goes and gets engaged to this girl. And then when that marriage breaks off, he says to the priest. Oh, this Thursday and I will be back next month to get married. Like, <laughs> I, there's not brings up an interesting philosophical discussion about love. I mean, is it possible? I I've had this discussion with 
students before about is it possible to love two people at the same time? Or within a couple of weeks of each other. <laughs> well, we wouldn't have several genres of literature. <laughs> there wasn't. <laughs> no love triangles. Yeah, I think I think that Landon and Thursday's relationship is more an informed relationship than a demonstrated relationship. Um, and and you know the stories the stories off on a on a bunch of other directions, and that's not something they really have time to. Right. This to... Uh, this isn't even a B storyline. Mm-hmm. <laughs> relationship with Landon. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess there's. So, because how this, how important is that relationship? Uh, how important a role does the relationship play in the future? Well, <laughs> spoiler zone. <laughs> yes. <laughs> in revenge, someone might erase him from the timeline, and she might have to rescue him. Right. So he's kind <laughs> of gone novel. again. Possibly. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. may, may or, that may, I, or may not happen, but it yeah. could potentially happen. But I think there's a. I think there's. I don't remember if it's the third one or the fourth one, but I think there's one where he's where he's pretty supportive and pretty around for for most of the... Mm-hmm. I mean, we just don't get a whole lot of him. So, like, for me as a character, he's kind of a cipher. I don't... Mm-hmm. I don't I know like what, how to read him. I don't know. I don't I don't mind having a flat male love interest for well, once. Well, yeah, I was going to say, which is, <laughs> which is an inversion of... Well, she does, you know, she's the one who... who yeah, it, there's an inversion of a lot of the tropes that we associate with those, those kinds of love stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought I thought I, I don't I like the way that he handled himself about the Crimea thing. I don't know. I thought he, I thought he was I I, yeah, I, I wasn't guess, disappointed uh, in him as a character, but he's certainly not as funny or fun as the Japanese tourist lady. I mean, fun. <laughs> she's amazing. She's she's in the book for all of like four pages. Well, I know, but then she shows up at the wedding at the end, and right. I like I was just delighted to see her. <laughs> Right, because you know, cause when because when Thursday first goes into Jane Eyre to try to find Hades, she meets, she goes with Rochester, and Rochester tells Mrs. Fairfax to just to kind of take care of her and find her a room. And Mrs. Fairfax is very suspicious of her, of like, well, you know, do women wear breeches where you come from and yeah. go with their head uncovered? And and she's like, well, I'm from really far away. She's like, how far? Like really far. And um and so the woman's you know nods knowingly says, aha, Osaka. And it, and it seems so random. It doesn't like, explain it all. Yeah, so yeah. And then it turns out that's where Mrs. Nakajima is from. And so he's like, okay, you wear pants. You must be from Osaka. <laughs> right, I loved it. All right, I had another question that I want to ask. Um, we've we've said some about this world that there's all sorts of weirdness <laughs> to it. Uh, what do you think are some of the cleverest bits that just like these things that get dropped in your lap? So some things that we haven't even mentioned yet. Uh, there's a whole gene splicing subculture where they bring back extinct creatures. <laughs> so Thursday next has a Dodo version 1.2, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they talk <laughs> about how they got improved by version 2.3 and those sorts of, you know, they fixed all these other genetic things. So, but they never really deal with that. It's just part of the, the wallpaper of this world that Jasper Ford is building. So Todd, did you have any favorite little side bits? There's a part, I can't remember exactly where it is. Um, but when he's talking about he's talking about how they feed the bookworms <laughs> with uh, apostrophes or no the apostrophes is, are their like excrement right yes <laughs> or they're, they're they're fed with uh, ex- words that people take oh, out oh, of the pre- prepositions and and articles i think yes implied prepositions mm-hmm. yes implied prepositions that's it and so you know it, i can't think of the examples right now but um, it's obvious that he just relishes 
uh, language and playing with words and well, and even they <laughs> there's one scene where the bookworms start belching and because right. their gases are these extra apostrophes like all the words start to have extra apostrophes where they shouldn't be and hyphens <laughs> and then they they gets worse and they start to hyphenate words that right. don't need to be hyphenated <laughs> <laughs> and then they stop and then they and then everything gets back to normal I, I just want- I love I love watching or I love reading when I know that the that the author is just uh, paying careful attention to every word and every detail, and it, this feels like that it doesn't feel highbrow in, in in the way that it's written. I, mean, I think the writing is accessible. The content is uh, sometimes densely packed with these references to other things, uh, but the language is always uh, clean and clear, and you can tell that he's paid a lot of attention uh, to detail, and I like that. That ampersand moment where the or or the the apostrophe moment and I guess the ampersands also start happening where the yes. like the text on the page actually changes but no one in the story makes any references to it like it's <laughs> it's a very postmodern moment where your attention is drawn to the fact that you're reading a book because mm-hmm. if you're trying to imagine that scene in your head you can't right because what's happening on the page doesn't match because no one's drawing it you know no one's no one's mentioning this so it's yeah, it's, it's, not, it's, it's not so different from like when we were talking about Asterius Polyp and how great. I think great artists are able to do things with their medium that you just couldn't do with any other medium. And and this is a book that if you were to make it into a movie or draw a comic, it wouldn't be it just wouldn't be the same. You would lose a lot of the charm yeah, lo- of the story. Yeah, you would lose the charm. Exactly. Uh Kirsten, do you have any favorite little side <laughs> side um, versions of this earth i just love everything to do with whales i just think it's really funny <laughs> i i had a semester of welsh in college like you do um <laughs> so i um, so i you know i know a little bit about whales and about the language and and uh and, and yeah just the idea of, of whales as being this you know terrifying cold war communist you know stranglehold <laughs> and the cheese tariffs i like the cheese tariffs too so <laughs> I think my one of my other favorites, though, which we already mentioned, is the Shakespeare truthers who are missionaries. They go knocking on the door. Have you considered Bacon as the true author? <laughs> Pardon me, madam. Take a moment to hear about Francis And, and you get into the whole, like, the, he gets into the minutia of, oh, yeah. of why these series could or could not work. Yeah. Because they'll get into, like, well, this will makes mention to that thing. Like, yes. like not Will Shakespeare, but, like, the death will. Right. Uh, will and Testament makes mention to this, which would destroy this one element of the Baconian argument. And then... The, the Marlovians have, you know, their their theory is like, but, you know, this this one two-week t- bit of the timeline of history doesn't actually make sense. That, you know, this this play was written too early for it really to have been Marlowe acting as Shakespeare. But it's right. only by, like, two weeks early. But that mm-hmm. kind of destroys the Marlovian argument. Uh, so you, you can tell amongst all of the references and everything, and even though he's clearly, like, he makes things up and things are wrong, but you, can, you know he can make those things wrong because he's done enough research to know what's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's delightful. I really, really enjoyed this book. Well, any final thoughts that you guys want to add about Thursday Next or The Air Affair? I was just going to say there, um, there is a lot of Borges and Unamuno and Cervantes in this novel, yes. um, which I really, really enjoyed a lot. And I know that some of our listeners are maybe more familiar with Borges and Unamuno and Cervantes than they are with <laughs> Dickens <laughs> and the Brontosaurus. Is, uh, is it there and, a... Sorry. 
No, go ahead. Isn't there a Borges short story where someone translate like rewrites Don Quixote exactly the same, but everyone analyzes it completely differently because it's been written like hundreds of years later or something? Yeah, anyway, that, Bor- that kind of thing. Where there were two the the Borges story that that most made me think of this is called oh no I can't remember what it's called. It's called uh, Orbis Tertius. You can get oh, yeah. stories right. Yeah. <laughs> it has a Latin name, but um, yeah, uh, that's the one where the imaginary check the recesses of my mind. <laughs> that's the one where the imaginary world becomes real. Oh, right? it's Tolone. Okay, it's called Tolone Ukbar Orbis Tertius. I don't know why you couldn't remember that. Come on. <laughs> I should. We are podcasting actually, professionals, Todd. <laughs> there's actually a really great episode of um, Inspector Lewis where Talon Ukbar is uh, a, an important clue in a murder mystery. But in that story, there's this... Uh, are we talking psych- about Inspector Lewis or... No, 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 I'm talking about the, the Borges <laughs> story now where um, these people decide to create an encyclopedia of uh, a make-believe world. And then it turns into a secret society that then lasts uh, throughout the generations, and they eventually create create this world through their um, because they've built this encyclopedia. Then things from the imaginary world that they've created start to pass over into our world. Um, and there's also a novel called uh, Niebla by Miguel de Unamuno. Um, Niebla means mist, in which uh, a character at the end. It wants to commit suicide because his life is horrible, and his friend says, "You can't commit suicide. You're just a character in a novel." And he says, "What?" And <laughs> this is in 1911, <laughs> and and he says, "Yeah, Unamuno. He's he's the one that's in charge." And then Unamuno, who's narrating the story, says, "Oh, wait a second. There's a knock on my door." And he opens the door and he says, "Oh, it's Augusto Perez." And they <laughs> sit down together and he says, "You ruined my life. I want to kill myself." And Unamuno says, "You can't kill yourself. I." I, uh, I'm in charge of you. And he says, no, you're not. I'm going to kill myself. And Unamuno says, you know what? I'm tired of you. I'm going to kill you. And he says, no, I'm going to kill myself first. And then he runs out the door and dies. And then there's this sort of, did he, did he do it? Did, did Augusto Perez really, <laughs> did, he, did he wrestle agency from the author and kill himself? Or did Unamuno sort of finish him off in um, this sort of joy in, uh, in, in the text and these characters that become self-conscious like uh, Sancho and Quixote do in the second part of the Quixote. But Real, I really, really, really liked it. Going back to that Borges story where they write the encyclopedia out of fictional world and, yes. and they're able to make it, does that mean we're going to have lightsabers soon because so many people <laughs> have written yeah, well, that's the about idea. Star Wars? <laughs> that's the idea. Um, and, and you would say, oh, that's so crazy. But if you even look at things like Star Trek and then... Yes. And then you see things start to creep into our world that, that and even they originate follow. in fictional worlds. Yeah. Uh, it's not so far-fetched. Mm-hmm. All right. Any thought, final thoughts, Kirsten? No? Okay. That wraps up this episode. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in iTunes, and please leave us a review. It helps with our listenership and our self-worth. And uh, links to things that we've talked about in this episode will be available at protagonistpodcast.com, and that's where you can also find a list of all our previous episodes. And you can suggest stories or contact us about with any comments by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. And we're on Twitter, at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, at Jay Dorowski, and our producer, Andrew, is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. Kirsten, are you on Twitter? Yes, I am at I am 
at at BYU underscore librarian. Okay. Uh, and our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist podcast. If you want to buy a topic for us to discuss or just support us with a financial donation, you can click the support link on our homepage or go to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back again next week to discuss another great character and a great story. I dare someone to buy Martin Chuzzlewit. <laughs> oh, uh, I... <laughs> Uh, on that note, so long. <laughs> so long. <laughs> Has Kirsten done the dinner guest question? She did. She it did. did last time. Yeah. Has it changed? Uh, no, because they haven't come over for dinner yet. <laughs> <laughs>